Well, it's joy to be with you. Uh, before I go any further, I, I'm, I, if I don't say this, I'll end up forgetting it. Uh, regarding the uh, Ewan's ministry there in Hong Kong, their goal, the, the church they are now pastoring is a mission church that was started by, by a, uh, another a Chinese pastor. He has moved on, and that's how they have, he was asked to take that church. James' goal is to get that church self-supporting. He really wants to see a, a Chinese pastor raised and trained from there so that he can then go on and, and um, start another church or pastor another small mission church or however the Lord might, might lead there. His goal is to see churches strengthened, duplicated, and uh, appreciate your prayer and support for them. The Babalolas, that, that motorcycle ministry, is not as exciting as it sounds, okay? <laughs> it's not what you think. Uh, they use these motorcycles to reach into more remote areas. It's easier to get around a motorcycle to travel, and they send out people and visit in these areas. And so um, they've been able to reach a lot of areas because of their motorcycles. Uh, they had two motorcycles. One of them was stolen. So they, they have one left, and they hope to replace that one and get one more because that has been so successful. So uh, anyway, I just want to thought better clarify that. It's not a motorcycle club he has going on there in, in, uh, in Nigeria. Uh, I do appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, it has been a blessing to be here. Thank you so much for your hospitality and the fellowship. Uh, Les and I really enjoy coming here. I uh, probably shouldn't say this, but you're one of our favorites. And we travel all over the world, and we love, coming, we love coming here. And love seeing what God is doing. Appreciate your pastor, Brother Tom, and, and all the leadership that, that is here. Uh, it's always uh, just a great blessing to be here and see what you're doing for missions, uh, what you're doing here in this church, and, and the discipling and training people for the cause of Christ. This morning, I want to, you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to the book of Romans chapter 10, that passage that was read this morning. Uh, we're going to uh, look here. Before we get here, however, I do want to make a couple of comments that I think would be good to set the stage for what we're going to look at. Uh, we heard uh, a little bit this morning uh, a couple of these verses I'm going to refer to uh, in the Sunday school hour about the harvest that is there. The, 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 the scripture talks about the fact that the fields are, are white unto harvest. They're ready, they're just ready to be, to be brought in, uh, ready to be harvested. Uh, sometimes we don't think of that. We, we think people are so tough today. It's so hard to win people to Christ. It's so hard to share the gospel with people. People are so resistant. And yes, that is true to a point. But all of that just really reflects the great need that is there. You know, sometimes people are the most resistant, the most argumentative, when, when really they are searching the hardest for the truth. Uh, because they really want what they hear of Christianity, they really wish it to be true. Uh, but they're struggling in their sin. They're struggling in, in, in their unbelief. They're struggling to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And um, what you find is, is what the Lord said to his disciples and ultimately to us and, and generations to follow is, that, yes, indeed, the harvest is plenteous. We read here in 
John chapter 4, 35. Do not say there are still four months, then comes the harvest. I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. We, we tend to want to postpone. Someday we'll get around to sending out missionaries. Someday we'll get around to giving people the gospel. Uh, scripture says as well in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus to his disciples says, The harvest truly is plentiful. But again, as we heard this morning in the Sunday school hour, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then again, Luke chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest truly is great or plenteous, but the laborers are few. So here's a couple questions just to think about as we start today. What did Jesus mean when he said the harvest is great? Well, he was obviously referring to the mass of humanity that has deep, eternal, spiritual needs. They do not know of Christ or of the salvation he has provided. They have no hope. I'll give you a couple of examples of that this morning as we, as we get into our passage. They have no hope in this world, in many cases, because in some, many parts of the world they're extremely poor. We have no idea of the wealth, the blessing that we have in this country. Even some of the poorest people in our country are wealthier than many people in other parts of the world. Uh, I have been in, in homes or huts of people who have nothing materially in this world, and yet they have the joy of the Lord. And uh, they don't know they're poor. <laughs> uh, don't tell them they're poor. They have the joy of the Lord. They're serving God. God's providing for their, for their needs. And, you know, we, we jokingly talk sometimes about, you know, first world problems uh, versus third world problems, you know. There was a long line at Starbucks today. I had to wait 10 minutes to get my, you know, my, my latte. Uh, th these are first world problems that we oftentimes get so frustrated about. But many people have no hope in this world or in eternity. And then he says to pray for laborers. Because this harvest need is so great, we should pray for laborers. Why? And that brings us to Romans chapter 10. We're going to answer that question. What is the answer to the needs of of the harvest. The harvest is great. There's no question about that. The, the harvest fields are great. The need is great. The, the, the timing is great. What should we therefore do? What, what should be our response? When we come to Romans chapter 10, uh, I was here a couple years ago. Your pastor was preaching through Romans. He, he did a great job. I told him it was one of the best messages I had heard. I think it was Romans chapter 9 uh, he was uh, dealing with at that time. But we're going to look at chapter 10, the passage that was read this morning. We're going to go look at, at, for sake of time, only a couple of these verses because there's a very logical sequence of questions that are asked that really drives home this, this need and how, how do we answer that need. We all know verse uh, 13 of Romans 10. We've used it. Maybe use it in witnessing, maybe in sharing the gospel with someone. We, we quoted this verse to them. It says, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that is a great verse. That's a great truth. But you know what that verse does? That verse offers hope. Because what this text tells us that 
no matter where a person is in this world, no matter what their background, what their ethnicity, what their nationality, what their religious background, what social status they are, if they will call upon the name of the Lord, they can be saved. That's a tremendous truth. That is, that is hope in a world where people have very little hope. I told you, I, I meet people around the world. I was in India, and we were teaching some pastors. And there was a break in the sessions. We went outside. There was a woman standing there next to an ox and an ox cart. The ox was lying down on the ground. Uh, it was very hot. It was very dry. The ox was dirty. One of the pastors uh, started talking to this woman and, and translating for us and found out she was Hindu, and I forget how the conversation, but, but somehow the question of came up, what is your hope in this world? What, what are you looking forward to? What's the hope you're hanging on to? She said, I want to come back reincarnated as a water buffalo. Looking at this thing, sitting there on the ground, uh, she was serious. I mean, she was, she was dead serious. Her idea of hope was coming back into the, a new life as, as a water buffalo. I don't have no idea. I, we didn't, the conversation didn't get that far, why she would have been so thrilled with that idea. But boy, that, that's no hope, okay? Um, throughout the world, there are people who just do not have hope. One of the very first trips I took when I became the director of the mission board, actually, I was, wasn't even the director yet. I was just uh, working as assistant director. My predecessor and I went to India, and we spent three weeks there. I came back. I, uh, I was actually up in the Bay Area, uh, Bay Area at that time, and, and we were flying through Phoenix. And I was waiting for my flight, and it was springtime. Well, springtime in Phoenix is spring training time. And I just, people were coming back and forth. Everybody was dressed really, you know, kind of trendy and, and smiles on their faces. And I was sitting there thinking, something isn't, isn't right. Um, I've been here before. I, I, what is so different? Then it dawned on me. After three weeks in India, in the general public, I had never seen anyone smile. Now, in the churches, people were smiling and joyful and radiating the joy of Christ. But in the general population, very few people smiled. And I thought about that, and I thought, there's a reason for that. When 90-some percent of the population are Hindu, and their hope is to come back reincarnated as a water buffalo, there's not a whole lot to smile about. Because they don't have a whole lot of hope in this world or the next world. But Romans 10.13 says, if they will call upon the name of the Lord, they can be saved. They can have their sins forgiven. They can have a relationship with God. So you say, well, why, why doesn't that? That's the need. The need is so great, and this promise is so great. What's the disconnect? What's, what's missing? So here we have a great need. The, har- the fields are wide into harvest. And here's the, the offer of hope. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's missing? What's missing is what we have in the following verse. Actually, following two verses, verses 14 and 15. He says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? There are four very logical questions that Paul asks here, one right after another, that bring us to a very logical conclusion. And they're really rhetorical questions. The answers are obvious. But I want us to walk through that because it really gives us the key to answering the need of the harvest. First of all, very simply, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? What this really is asking is, are the heathen really lost? The Bible answers that question, yes. Because they cannot call on the name of the Lord to be saved unless they believe. That means there has to be genuine, biblical, saving faith. People are not born Christians. People are not born into this world Christian. You're not a Christian because your parent was a Christian or your grandparent was a Christian or you came into this church today does not make you a Christian. People are Christians because, and they have this hope because they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical faith is understanding what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. It's understanding who he is, that he was the son of God who came into this world, lived a sinless life, offered himself willingly as a sacrifice for our sin. He was the propitiation, the substitute, the payment for our sin. He took our place. He died in our place. He bore our sins and his body on the tree. It's believing that and believing that I cannot in myself save myself, that no work of righteousness will save me. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's by his mercy he has saved us. It's understanding that it's not by works. It's not by just being a good person or trying to somehow change my life that, that I can be saved. It's understanding that my salvation is entirely in the person of Jesus Christ. And in him, I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. I turn to Jesus Christ. I put my trust completely in Christ, in him and nothing else. That's biblical faith. People believe in all kinds of things today. You know, people say, I believe in God. Well, James says the devils believe in God, and they tremble. You know, just generic belief in God's not sufficient. Um, I've met people in many places. I, I remember standing outside of this shrine, and it was, it was uh, our missionary was telling us that it was a shrine, it was a statue. No, I take it back. It was a tree. Excuse me. It was a tree uh, that was there, and there was an iron fence around it. And he said, the, the local legend is this tree f- fell from heaven. It was a goddess who came down from heaven to bless this neighborhood and to make it prosperous. I looked around the neighborhood. It was pretty poor. <laughs> My thought was she didn't do a very good job, you know. And we're almost kind of looking at it lightheartedly, making fun of it, and then as we're talking, this poor lady walks up. I see her coming. She stands in front of the gate, and she gets down on her knees and starts praying to that tree. People believe in all kinds of things. They, you know, you go around the world, you find out how many people believe and pray to idols, bow down before idols. I was in a hotel lobby waiting for a ride, and this man is, many of the hotel lobbies had, had 
uh, idols in them and incense burning to them. And this man is uh, leaving. He's waiting, I think, waiting also for a ride. And he takes, I see him bow down before this idol. Then he takes some coins out of his pocket and he tosses the coin up on top of the idol. And there's like a little fountain there as well. And I guess it's supposed to stay there. But the coin kept rolling down and came back down on the floor. Tell he was kind of disturbed by that. He picked it up. He tossed it up again. The coin kept falling back down, kept rolling back down. He did that about four times. Finally, in frustration, he picked the coin up, put it in his pocket, and stormed out the door. I guess in his mind, the idol was not receiving his offering that day. I, I don't know what he was thinking. But I, I thought, how futile. How absolutely futile. But that is, that is the belief of millions and billions of people in this world. So they could be saved. That man, that woman praying to that tree, that you know, lady standing by the a water buffalo, they could have eternal life. They could know Christ as their Savior. They could have their sins forgiven. They could have a relationship with God, just as you could. Any of us here can, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning. Because whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But they cannot do that if they do not believe. But then there's a second question. How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? That means there has to be somewhere a presentation of the gospel. They have to know who Jesus Christ is. They, they can't believe in something that, that they, they don't know. If they've never heard of Christ, if they've never heard a gospel presentation, if they've never understood how can they call on the name of the Lord in faith? How can they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? So they have to believe, but to believe, they, they have to hear. I grew up in southern Ohio, part of the Bible Belt. Everybody I knew went to church. They weren't saved. They weren't true believers, but you know, everybody went to church. In fact, the scandal of our neighborhood, I still remember this as a kid, the scandal of our neighborhood was, was Mr. Lavender, who every Sunday morning would get out and cut his grass as people were leaving for church. It was sort of his way of saying, I'm not going to church, you know, and you're not going to make me. I still remember talking about that. And, and you know, he is such a wicked man. He cuts his grass on Sunday morning. You know, he's, he, he's just, he's doing that. Thankfully, Mr. Lavender got saved uh, later on. He stopped cutting his grass too, at least on Sunday morning, and went to church. So that's where I grew up. So when I, I began pastoring here in California, I was up by, uh, we actually were near Berkeley, you know, which we lovingly call Berserkley, and for good reason. And I remember just visiting some people in the neighborhood, and we were inviting people. I, I forget, maybe it was a vacation Bible school or whatever, but I knocked on the door of this, this house, and this lady answers, a very nice middle-class neighborhood Begin talking with her, find out she's a graduate of UC Berkeley. And so in the conversation, I just threw out the question, well, are you a Christian? And I, I never will forget, she stopped and looked at me. She said, that's an interesting question. She said, you know, I've heard the name of Jesus Christ, but I don't think I could tell you who Jesus Christ is. I don't know really anything about him. That's the first time I actually heard someone say that. 
And it really, obviously it stuck with me, it really impacted me. Here we were in Northern California in a, in a nice middle-class neighborhood talking to a lady who was a graduate of one of the top academic schools in our country, and she has not heard of Jesus Christ. But I wonder how many people around this neighborhood, if they were honest, would say the same thing. I wonder how many people that you might know at work who would honestly say the, say the same thing. In fact, many people know the name of Christ, but honestly, they don't know anything about him. They've never seen from the Bible what the Bible teaches about salvation. They've never really seen. That, that, in fact, that's a question I used to, when I pastored in California, it's a question I used to ask people. Have you ever seen from the Scripture what the Bible teaches about how to know Christ. Because people would say, well, this is what my pastor says, my church believes, this is what I've heard. But have you seen from the Scripture? And most of the time, the answer to that was no, which obviously gives you the opportunity to say, well, could I take some time and show you how? Either now or make a, set up a time. And that oftentimes gave a great opportunity to, to share the gospel. Because they could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But they can't unless they believe, and they can't believe unless they have heard. Um, when you consider missions today, I just want to show some, put some numbers up for you to think about. We, one of the things we like to talk about is unreached people groups. Most of these are in the 1040 window, which they, you know, can really encompass about the, if you look at a map all laid out, it's about right in the center, uh, all the way across the world. According to the Joshua Project, which is an evangelical project that tries to survey his mission fields and the needs on different mission fields, they say that there are 7,417 unreached people groups in the world. Now, that's the recent. I just got that off their website just, just recently. That's their most recent number. An unreached people group has several characteristics. That means that there's less than 2% evangelical Christians. That means that there is less or less than 5% of Christian belief of any kind. So there, there, there's not any Catholic, there's not uh, any other whatever that would even call itself Christian. There is no access to a church or to a Bible, at least in the general population. That is the definition of an unreached people group. According to their statistics, over 7.7 billion people in the world, uh, population 7.7 billion people in the world, 3.2 billion are considered unreached, or 41.7% of the world's population. Almost half of the world's population today is unreached. Now, you may find that hard to grasp living here in the States, and if you have not traveled much out of the country. But go to some places like India or China or Southeast Asia or the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, people who, I mean, places where the gospel is forbidden and where the government is making great strides to keep out any type of gospel witness. And many of those countries and those nations are heavily populated areas. And people have absolutely no gospel witness at all in many of these parts of the world. 
Let me show you a couple other numbers here that are just, I think are, are interesting. These are major, if you, if you expand the unreached people group out a little bit, to include what would still include some reach, what they call reached or engaged uh, people groups. In other words, there, there might be a church within a couple hundred miles. There might be some missionary there somewhere. There might be some gospel witness. Uh, I would include where I go. Um, I'll be going in a couple of weeks, and, and if you want to pray for me, pray. I, we'll be going to India in about two and a half weeks and uh, working with our missionary in Bible college there. There's a lot of, that would be considered a, a reached people group. There's about 1% total of what we would really call genuine believers, but there are multiple churches. Uh, there's a Bible college, several Bible colleges, and still only a very small percentage of the population are, are truly saved. So, so that, doesn't, that doesn't fall in the unreached people group. So in some of these groups you see, like, for example, in the Muslim world, they have identified 38 total hundred people groups representing 865 million people. Tribal nations, uh, this would be, a lot of this would be in the South Pacific area and, um, and, and some parts of Africa. They have identified 2,700 people groups representing about 90 million people. Hindus, 1,800 people groups. 546 million people. You can see the numbers. Totaling about 11,000 people groups or 2.1 billion people who what they call in, in major blocks of restricted access nations. Some of these areas would not fit the category of unreached because there is some gospel witness there. There is a church planted. They do have the scriptures translated in their language. But very, very minuscule numbers. And the sad thing, all these millions and millions and billions of people could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But they can't unless they believe. And they can't believe unless they have heard. And that leads us to the third question. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach? Now, the word preacher there kind of throws us. The idea there is not necessarily always talking about someone who's standing behind a pulpit like this. But it is someone who is declaring forth the gospel. Could be one-on-one, could be in a small group, could be, could be behind a pulpit like this. But they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved, but they can if they don't believe, and, and they can't believe if they have not heard, and they can't hear unless someone tells them. So on the very first time I went to India... Um, Dr. Sproul, who was my predecessor, took me to introduce me to people. We were in this little city called Elaru, India. It's uh, southeastern towards the coast um, of India. It was at that time, still is, although they had a few western conveniences come in the area, it was a very non-western town. I mean, ox carts are going up and down the street still. Um, there were, they were, I still remember they were digging a ditch uh, for sewage or something across from our hotel. And the, the men were standing there supervising as the women were digging the ditch and putting the dirt on, in, in buckets on their head and carrying them away. And, and the men were supervising. Well, women were doing that. Well, Dr. Sproul liked to go 
for a walk in the morning, usually first thing in the morning. So he said, I'm going for a walk. You want to come with me? For some reason, I said no. I don't, I don't remember why. Well, the time he normally came back, he didn't come back. And, and frankly, I was getting pretty concerned. But then he comes in, and he is just so excited. He says, you won't believe what happened. He says, just down the street from us is a Hindu temple. And I'm just standing across the street watching people go in and out of this temple. And someone comes up behind me and in perfect English says, would you like to see the temple, have a tour of the temple? And he turns around and he says, well, thank you, but no, I've seen these temples before, but what are you doing here? Who are you? <laughs> he said, oh, well, we, we moved here from Portland, Oregon. And um, we have converted to Hinduism. And so what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm an evangelist. We have some churches here in this area, and, you know, we're, we're, I'm preaching at some of them and, and talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. And they said, that's interesting. So he asked him, said, well, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? I said, no. So he stands there and gives them the gospel for about a half hour. He says they asked questions, they asked good questions, they were very interested. I wish I could say they got saved, but he left them with an invitation to consider and, and, and gave them some literature. But I want you to think about the irony of that. That a couple, unbelievers, never heard of Jesus Christ, moved from Portland, Oregon to Ellaru, India, and there hear the gospel for the very first time after converting to Hinduism, from an evangelist from Phoenix, Arizona, and shares with him the gospel, and for the very first time they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, is that because there are no Christians in Portland? Well, I used to, you know, <laughs> you, you follow the news these days, you might think so, okay, but, but, but there are Christians in Portland, and there are churches in Portland, and one of our missionaries was just up at a church in Portland, so I know there's some good churches in Portland, okay? But the fact is, nobody shared with them the gospel. And we say that about Portland, Oregon, but what if they had moved from El Cajon? What if they'd moved from Santee or from one of these other areas nearby? Nobody shared with them the gospel. And the fact is that they could have called on the name of the Lord and been saved. But they didn't because they didn't know they didn't believe. They didn't believe because they had never heard. They didn't hear because no one ever told them until they were standing outside of a Hindu temple uh, on the other side of the world. That leads us to the fourth and final question. How shall they preach unless they are sent? How shall they preach unless they are sent? The fact of the matter is, we've talked about that already this week, is there, there are two entities that send out missionaries. One is God, and one is, yellow, is the local church. A missionary is one who knows that they are called of God. And I won't go into the details this morning of how that all transpires in a person's life, but, but the Apostle Paul, I said, I think it was last night, in almost every New Testament epistle, begins that epistle, was Paul called of God to be an apostle. Paul knew God had called him. There's a sense in which God, yes, God calls all of us to be witnesses. God calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. We're all called to be disciples. And a disciple, by definition, is a disciple maker. 
You're not really a disciple if you're not making other disciples, because that's what a disciple does, seeks to make other disciples. So there's a responsibility for all of us to share the gospel, as we heard even in our Sunday school hour this morning, to share the gospel, to be involved, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ. But what about all these nations of the world that we saw, where there are hundreds of millions of people who haven't even heard of Jesus Christ? Who's going to tell them? Well, there, there is a calling of God. They have to be sent. Now, honestly today, if when you look at nations around the world and you see where there's little, if any, gospel witness, is it because God is not calling someone there or because the people whom he is calling are not listening and are not willing to go? I, I, I tend to believe that there are a lot of people God is calling and burdening. But the love of this world, the material things of this world, have a very strong attachment. And I realize God does not call everyone, but God does call and is calling others and calling some. I was a little boy, about 10 years old, when my parents took us to a, a neighboring church for, for some special meeting. And I don't remember who the speaker was. Um, I, I do remember we were sitting at the front row, or near the front row, which means we probably got there late. Because <laughs> we usually did not sit at the front row. And I don't remember much about the message. But I do remember the, 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 the speaker closing with this question in this exhortation. He said, if, if you are willing to go wherever God wants you to go, to be what God wants you to be, do what he wants you to do. He said, I would like you just to stand to your feet, and we're going to have a prayer of dedication for you. Well, I was a 10-year-old boy. I've been saved since I was seven. Raised in a Christian home, went to a good church. I wasn't that what every Christian wants. And so I stood to my feet. You know, I think he had heads bowed, eyes closed, and we stood to our feet. I thought everybody probably was standing. And all of a sudden, you know how you all of a sudden kind of feel lonely? feel this breeze going past me, and I look out my right eye. Nobody's there. This eye, nobody's there. There may have been someone in the back, because he made reference to someone. I don't know if he was doing that just to make me feel good or not, but, but he prayed a prayer of dedication. I sat down. I went home that night with my parents. My parents never said anything to me about that, because I think they probably thought, I misunderstood the question, or I stood by accident. You know, you know how that is. You know, you, you, someone stands up at the wrong time, and you're all of a sudden embarrassed, and, and you don't want to say anything to them. So I think that's maybe what they thought. But you know what? I did understand the question. And I, I was very sincere. I, 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 did, I was telling the Lord that morning as a 10-year-old boy, I'll go wherever you want me to go, do what you want me to do, be what you want me to do want me to be. Now, I, I fought that with my teenage years a little bit. I made reference to that the other night and finally surrendered again to the Lord. But every time I'm in a mission field somewhere across the world, in some remote place, like how in the world did I get here? I think to myself back to that moment and, and think, Lord, I told you I'd go wherever you want me to go. And God has led me to, to some incredible places, uh, and I, I thank the Lord for that. So 
there are individuals that God calls. There may be young people here. You don't know what God wants you to do yet, but God just wants you to be willing. God wants you to be yielded. And God will continue, if you have a yielded heart, a willing heart, God will continue to direct you and guide you and, and direct your steps where, where he wants you to go. The first place God sent me was into the pastorate, where I thought I would spend the rest of my life. And then God began to direct me more in the area of missions. But by God's grace, I was a willing vessel that God could use and God could direct. There's nothing more exciting than to know that God has called you and that you are aware of God and, God had, and, and that it's, it's overwhelming, it's intimidating, it might be a little scary, but it's very exciting to know that God has a plan for my life, God's directing me, and God has a, a, a will for me. And then I said there's two entities. One is God that does ascending, and the other is the local church. I've talked about that already this week. The local church has the responsibility of confirming that call, of, of, of helping, aiding, and, and then sending them out. That's what you find the example in the Scripture. Because this wonderful truth is that all these people, these millions of people, these billions of people can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But they cannot do that if they don't have faith. They cannot, if they don't believe. If they don't believe, they can't believe if they've never heard. They can't hear unless someone has told them. And someone can't go tell them unless they are sent. I may have shared this next story with you last time I was here. I don't remember if I shared this story with you or not in another context, but or you may have heard it from another source, but a number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago, or, or maybe a little more now, uh, I was back, it was a missions conference week at Bob Jones University, and I was back there representing our mission board. And Dr. Jonathan Dreisbach, who many of you may, may know, uh, retired missionary in Africa, a very skilled, highly skilled medical doctor, uh, was giving his testimony. At uh, this point in his life, I think he was around 80 years old or so, and he had just recently gotten back from a mission trip uh, in Africa. And he told the story of how he was in Africa. He knew of this little island in the middle of Lake Chad. And he said, as far as I knew, no missionary had ever gone there with the gospel. So he said, I, I was greatly burdened. I mean, his, his wife had, had recently passed away. He was by himself. He wasn't in the greatest of health himself. But he said, you know, God's just burning my heart to go give the gospel to these people. So he was able to recruit some young men to go do a lot of the heavy work for him. And he ended up spending, I believe it was nine months, if I remember right, nine months in, in a little village on this island. He lived in a mud hut right in the center of the village. And said, every day I would sit outside my door and I would come and people would come and I would teach them. I would teach them from the word of God. He said, the two most difficult questions I ever heard in my entire life were asked me during those nine months. The first one when I got there was, teacher, if what you are saying is true, why has no one ever come to tell us this before? We have loved ones who have died. Where are they? Why has no one told us this truth? 
He said, the only thing I could say, the only answer I had was, I, I cannot answer that. I do not know. But I'm here now to tell you. He says, after nine months, he had discipled many of those people, won many of those people to Christ, discipled them. Uh, it was exciting, he says, to see their spiritual growth, their hunger for the Lord, the hunger for the Word of God. But when they realized he was leaving, he said, one of these individuals came to him and says, Teacher, you have been teaching us the Word of God, but now you are leaving. Who's going to come now and teach us your Word? Again, he had to say, I do not have the answer for that. But I'm going to pray that God sends someone uh, to teach you his word. I don't know if anyone ever went. But that scenario could be played out all around the world today. Where there are places, as, as you saw just in the statistics I showed you, where there, are, there is little, if any, gospel witness. There is no church. There is no Bible translated into their language. There is no continuing presence giving the gospel, sharing the gospel with people. And we are talking about millions upon millions upon millions of people. I think that number was, what, 3.1 billion people live in unreached areas. Certainly God is calling. And God may call young people, and as a church, I hope you pray that God will call young people to go to some of these places. You know, sometimes God calls older people too. You know, we have a ministry in Indonesia. It's in the universities, teaching English in the universities. Uh, you can't go there as a missionary, but you can go there as an English teacher. They're, they're desperate for people to come do that. They want you to. And uh, we do. We have an organization. It's a legitimate, it's not a fake, it's a legitimate English teaching uh, company that teaches there. But our real reason for being there is to share the gospel, to build relationships and to lead people to Christ, to disciple them, and then to be able to direct them towards uh, churches where they can continue to grow in Christ. We had a couple in their, I guess it was mid-70s, come to me. Uh, this has been a number of years ago now, but they came to me and said, we think God's calling us to go there and teach English. My third, first thought was, well, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, the, the husband had a couple of health issues, and I know how it is over there. The ground's very uneven, e easy to fall and trip and, and get hurt. And, but they were persistent. And I uh, talked with their daughter. She says, yeah, mom and dad think this is where God's calling them. They're going to go. So I said, all right. You know, that, that's, and they were going to go for two years, I think. Well, I think they only made it for about a year and a half uh, because of health issues, uh, they, had, they had to come home. But they had a fantastic ministry there. One of the neat things was I remember, I remember uh, Suzanne, the, the wife, saying, you know, she says, I'm in this little English teaching group, and because of my age in Asian culture, you know, they were highly respected. In our, our culture, they, you know, we look at someone, oh, they don't know anything, they're, they're, they're old. You know, in Asian culture, they know a lot, they're old. So she says, I would get asked these questions about boy-girl relationships, about marriage, about, you know, I'm counseling this young lady about, you know, uh, her boyfriend and, and, and how, to, how to deal with this situation and that situation, and gave them just huge open doors to share the gospel. They were tired. They didn't need income. They had, they had retirement income. They, 
They just wanted to make their life count for the Lord. So God, no doubt, is calling many people, young and old, to go around the world and preach the gospel. The question is, are we really listening? And the fact of the matter is, whether God calls you to go or whether it is to stay here, you still have a part in missions because you are either one who is sent or you are one who is involved doing the sending. So either side of that rope, you know, whether we're letting the missionary down into the well, into the abyss, to be able to preach the gospel there, or whether we're holding on to the rope on the other side, we're, we're a one end of that rope, either being let down, lowered down, or we're on the other end holding the rope so they can go down. Missions affects every single one of us. And because the task is so great, because, as we've seen in this text, if they will call upon the name of the Lord, they can be saved. There's hope for a hopeless world, but they cannot do that unless they believe, unless there's genuine saving faith. They cannot have that genuine saving faith unless they hear. They cannot hear unless someone tells them. And someone can't tell them unless they are sent. That's why he said, blessed are the feet of those who spread glad tidings of peace. What a great privilege it is to serve Jesus Christ. It's not something you ought to fear. It's not something we'll look at, oh, I'm afraid God's going to call me to the mission field. What a great privilege that would be if God would call you and send you and, and give you a life full of ministry, telling people about the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And as we go to prayer this morning, I just want to leave you with a couple of questions to think about. And then I'll turn the service over to uh, Steve or uh, Josh. But I want you to think this morning, and, I, and I'd like us to close really just in, in silent prayer, praying and searching our own heart this morning. First of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. There may be someone here who's never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Uh, I don't know all of you. I've met many of you, but I don't know all of you. I don't know your spiritual needs. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you are visiting. Maybe you're a regular attender. I don't know. But you realize this morning you do not have that hope. You have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible is pretty clear. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord, if you realize your need of Christ, you realize, understand what he has done for you, turn from your sin, put your trust completely in him, you can be saved. And if that is your situation, I hope you right now, as our heads are bowed, eyes closed, just talk to the Lord and ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to give you eternal life. And then I, I, I really encourage you to talk to someone here and let us know you've done that so they can give you counsel and guidance from the Word of God. But probably the majority of you here do know Christ is your Savior. But I wonder if God is not speaking to your heart about some aspect of missions. Maybe there may be some people, individuals, that God is calling to the mission field and burdening your heart uh, to take the gospel somewhere. Could be a young person, could be an adult, that God is dealing with you this morning.
Uh, I just I would challenge you this morning. If that is the case, why don't you just silently pray to the Lord and talk to the Lord about that? Do as I did. I'm not going to ask you to stand as that preacher did to me many years ago and pray, but, but you could pray that to the Lord very simply. Lord, I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Do what you want me to do. Be what you want me to be. Uh, Lord, I, here am I. Send me. That's what the prophet said. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And if that is the desire of your heart, I just quietly now, as our heads bowed and eyes closed, just spend time talking to the Lord about that. Maybe others of you, you know you're where God wants you to be. That's great. That's wonderful. But is there more I can do, Lord? Maybe it's visiting some mission fields. Maybe it's helping some missionaries. Maybe it's giving more. Maybe it's praying more faithfully for our missionaries. Lord, what would you have me to do? How can I better help those who you have sent? How can I be better part of this ministry in sending forth laborers into the harvest field? I'd ask you quietly this morning, just before God, do business with the Lord this morning. Father, as our heads are bowed and eyes closed, you know the needs that are here. Father, I ask that you to do business with folks this morning. May they do business with you. If there's someone here who does not know Christ, I pray they would come to know you as their Savior. Even in this moment, they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And would share that with someone so we can, we can help them from the Scriptures and encourage them. I pray, Lord, for young people or, or maybe older people here this morning in whose heart you're working, burdening them to go somewhere and tell people who've never heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, from this church, I pray you would raise up a multitude of missionaries who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Lord, you may not be calling some here to go, but as a member of this church, as a part of this body of believers, they do have a responsibility to send forth laborers, to be a part of that sending. So Lord, I pray this morning you make very clear what role you would have them to play, how they could be a further help, how they could be an encouragement. Lord, just do your work. In each life this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.